Dear God, we thank you for a day apart, a day to to uh, step back and and learn more about you in a special way. Um, we ask for your presence. We ask for forgiveness of our sins, and we ask that we may be teachable and that we will uh, have a revelation from you in the book that promises to give us that. In your name, Amen. Okay, at the, like I mentioned, we had uh, this is now two weeks since our last session, and uh, and I was at the Society of Biblical Literature meetings in Atlanta, and there is, a, <coughs> there, is there are some Adventist satellite meetings in connection with these meetings. There are two Adventist groups meeting. There one go, one is called the Adventist Theological Society, and the other one is the Adventist Society for Religious studies. And, um, and then there is the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature, and that group is about, I, I'm not sure how many came this year, anywhere from six to 8,000 people all over, from all over the world, from many, many countries, lots of people from Europe. And one, one uh, <coughs> heartwarming thing for me is that I get to meet some scholars from Norway who probably wouldn't talk to me in Norway. <laughs> because the, the power discrepancy between the Lutheran state church in Norway and, and me as a Seventh-day Adventist is so huge that we are, we are, to put it bluntly, nobodies in Norway. But when we meet in the US in the land of the free, we're equals. <laughs> so <clears throat> I met a very wonderful person who is a who is a top notch lutheran uh, paul, uh, scholar on paul in uh, uh, we have met from time to time it so happens that he has a brother who has his brother's wife was my intern she was working at, i was a, the chief of service in a hospital west of oslo and she was my the, his brother's wife was my intern. She was a lovely, lovely person, very, very nice person. She was a bit younger than, than her husband, but she had, we had a very good relationship in her, her as a trainee. And then, and then some other things have led me to have contact with this person who teaches, uh, teaches Paul at the Lutheran Seminary. And he, so he, uh, I walked into a session, and there he was sitting right behind me, and he said, Hi, Sigrid. <laughs> and we sat and talked for about an hour about various things, which was very, very nice. Uh, and I, my presentation on the faithfulness of Jesus to the Adventist Theological Society, I thought went well. It was definitely a new paradigm. It was def I definitely talked to a group who, who was significantly unaware of some of the shifts in interpretation, but I thought they were quite friendly. Uh, I thought that the evidence for a re revised view seemed to be quite, to hit them quite hard, <coughs> because the evidence is quite, <coughs> quite you know, striking. And one of the people there told me that I had made a very good case for the new paradigm. So thank you. That's good. And then, <clears throat> then I presented on on Monday to to a small group that is interested in ecological hermeneutics. You know how to read the Bible in a way that is friendly to ecological concerns and to to the body and the earth. And uh, and my presentation there was on the 
on the sabbatical year and the yearning of the land for rest. And it, I thought it was well received, but that's kind of a little sect, you know, and a big, it doesn't have much prestige, but the people who come there are very committed to it and, and, and friendly to our concerns. They want to write a commentary series. They have actually started writing a commentary series, reading the Bible from the perspective of the earth. They have already done uh, something called the Earth Bible series, but not on individual books of the Bible. And the leader of this group, he's a, a very patriarchal sort of, he looks like an Old Testament prophet. He, he, he has a, a very uh, sort of iconic uh, bearing. And he has, he asked me to, uh, he's asking me to write the commentary on Romans. <laughs> Which I may not do, but I, I'm not sure. You, could, I, I, you know, that's, that's a lot of work. And writing Romans from the perspective of the earth would to many people seem like turning wine into water. <laughs> so you have to be careful there too. But we'll see. We'll pray about it and talk to them a little. So it's interesting, though, that, that there is absolutely no, no sense of of reserve in some of these groups to, to someone coming from my, my church background. So that's interesting. Now, here is my comment on what is lacking in these sessions. Something is lacking because there is a sense of, what I would say, there is a sense of perhaps, uh, you know, self-referentiality among scholars in the, you know, this, uh, the academic community that we are it. There is no sense of ending. There is no sense of ending. It is sort of, there is no sense of, of eschatology. There is no sense of time running out. That, you know, that kind of thing is lacking. There is like, we will go on forever and have SBL meetings. Uh, and, it, and, and it's sort of like, we are the, we are the ending of the story. And <clears throat> here we are studying, in our group here, we're studying the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is full of a sense of ending. You know, it is pervasively end-oriented. Something is on the horizon. We're moving towards something, you know, and that should uh, even, you know, in our, our community, uh, one should not be, be embarrassed about that or, or be shy to project that. Now, <clears throat> the sense of ending that you have in the book of Revelation, by the way, I'm borrowing a title of this term, the sense of ending. This is a title of a book written by Frank Kermode. Have you, re have you uh, read it? Yeah. Frank Kermode is one of the most interesting literary critics of the 20th century and now into the 21st century. I don't think he is, I don't know if he's still alive, but he has, he, in North America, the most, uh, there is Northrop Fry, there is, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who now write, writes in New York Times, Stanley Fish. Stanley Fish and Northrop Fry are extremely learned people in North America who do literary criticism. You always learn something from them. You become a better reader by listening to those people. In the UK, the foremost literary critic, uh, I, I'd say that uh, not knowing that much about the subject, is Frank Kermode who has written some very interesting books, and he has written a book called The Sense of Ending. <laughs> and I, it just struck me because, because we are in a book that has a sense of ending. 
Now the genius of this book, and if I may throw in my own little commentary, the genius of this book and the genius of Seventh-day Adventism is not to say that Christ is coming soon. I always get uh, disappointed when I hear uh, fellow believers thinking that the genius of Adventism with respect to the sense of ending, which I think is really important, that that is to say that now Christ is coming soon. We have said that so many times and had egg on our face so many times for saying that. And we'll probably have egg on our face again for saying it, you know, in our generation. Now, not to say that, that it couldn't happen in our generation, that's not the point. The genius of the book of Revelation and the genius of the Adventist affirmation that there is an ending is that the ending is coming, but it isn't coming as soon as you had thought. There is something else, there is something more important than the end itself in the book of Revelation and, and in, in, in this account of ending, and that is the working out of the cosmic conflict. To find an end to the cosmic conflict in a, in a way that resolves the issues that needs to be resolved. That seems to me to be the genius of the book of Revelation. And if it is adopted, it would also be the genius of Advent. It could also be the genius of Adventism. You, you, you can comment and disagree or, you know, because it seems to me that, you know, the, that the, the tendency to say Christ is coming soon as though you have said what is the most essential and most important thing to say about, about the ending is to miss the point. The ending comes over and over in the book of Revelation. In the seals it ends, in the trumpets it ends, in the bowls it ends, and then it doesn't end. It just starts over and tells the story again, and then finally it does end. It ends sort of in Revelation 20, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, it's all over. <laughs> We're almost there. We're in Revelation 18. And... Uh, now, this is not exactly how I intended this to come out. My slide has de deceived me here, but Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17, tells the story of the ending. That story is repeated in a wider and deeper way in Revelation chapter 13. And that story is again expanded upon in Revelation 17 to 19. There is a sort of re recapitulation scheme in this book. We have talked about it now a number of times. A recapitulation scheme where a short story is told again in a more expanded way, wider and deeper. And we are now in the wider and deeper terrain or territory of Revelation 17 to 19 in uh, Revelation 18 then specifically. So that's sort of the scheme, the way, the sort of uh, structure, the way he tells this story. <clears throat> so let's just uh, read this uh, ending of Revelation 17, uh, the verses 16 and 17 by way of review, because we see in chapter 17 that Babylon comes undone. And maybe I could ask one of you to read it. We are reading verses uh, 16 and 17 in chapter 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. 
For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Well, one of the points of reading this text is is just to say that the story we will read in Revelation 18 has already been told in Revelation 17. Babylon has already come undone in Revelation 17. And here you see it. You see it falling apart where the the ten horns and the beast, they hate the whore. The wo- that's the woman sitting on top of the beast. They will make her desolate and naked. They will de- devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. You see, so there is an, Babylon is already undone, so why do we need to tell it one more time? You know, this is already, it's over. Uh, so <clears throat> he must have a reason. Let's see if we can figure out what the reason could be and, and what we could take away from it. In Revelation 18, one then begins, uh, and I can read this one. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. Now, I have underlined the term another angel. Should that, should another angel, in what ways? There is, uh, there is, Allos angelos in, in Greek, and, and, and the term for allos is a quite a strong word, a quite a pointed word. So another, another, another in what context, in what, in what sense is this angel configured in its, its otherness, you might say. Any comments on this? And it's a, this angel seems to have, a, to have a mandate. He comes from heaven, he has great authority. And he is a conspicuous, conspicuous figure. He illuminates the earth, you might say. So he makes, this angel makes an impact. You want to say anything about the context of this angel? You have a handout that can sort of cheat sheet here, <laughs> making it easy. <laughs> well, you can see how, how, how uh, John uh, goes back and forth, can't you? Can't you see how he sees this, he sees that? And then he returns to something he has been telling us before. So this angel belongs in what company? He is another angel in ref- with reference to whom or to what? He is another angel with reference to the three angels in Revelation 14, clearly. And these in Revelation 14, they are numbered. Revelation 14, 8, then another angel, a second followed. And Revelation 14, 9, then another angel, a third followed them. And then uh, Revelation 18, then we drop that subject, you know, that, the seri- the, that sequence of the three angels, we, we left it, and now we're back to it, because we have two stories going on here. This is God's story, a story being told through the through the angels, the activity of these angels, the three angels, and now how many angels do we have now? Now we have four angels. This is the fourth angel coming down and somehow, uh, somehow being uh, having the function of of reinforcing, reinforcing a sort of uh, a, a figure of culmination, you might say, uh, or completing this sequence. These angels are part of God's story. God is speaking in the world. God is speaking to the world. And the other story is whose story? 
the dragon story, the Satan story, the opposing story. So there are these two stories are are playing out, uh, interacting with each other. But this is definitely a scene from from God's story. And then he calls out <coughs> with a mighty voice, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great." Now that is new, isn't it? Well, not exactly, because that's exactly who said that before. The second angel in Revelation 14 said the same thing, exactly the same thing. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. So, you want to make, uh, make any comment on, on, on this? You know, repetition? Well, light, the, the illumination of this figure is certainly conspicuous. The whole earth was illuminated by his splendor. You know, that's, that's conspicuous. So there is a light factor. Light is a, con, is a significant uh, aspect of this. The fact that he re repeats the very same words. Anyone want to comment on that? Much has happened narratively. Much has happened in the meantime, hasn't it? You know, we've had the plagues, the seven last plagues. We've had Revelation 17, you know, and, and then we're back there. So that, that should help us or should influence us a little in how we const construct a timeline in Revelation because uh, the, the story moves back and forth in time, doesn't it? Or may, make, uh, certainly moves back and forth between various scenes. So if anyone wants to comment on, on that, I would like to give you an opportunity. So there is a finality to this, though. There is no more calls. This is it. Well, there is one more call. Revelation 22 cannot help itself. You know, at the end of Revelation 22, you have what I, in, some, in another context, has called the message of the Bible in one word. And we'll see. We, we, won't, we won't pre jump the gun. I'll just say that. There is a sort of call in the end of the Revelation too. But here is a, is a, a messenger on an urgent mission from heaven to the earth. And then he starts talking about the fall of Babylon. And maybe I could ask one of you to read Revelation 18 verses 2 and 3. He is called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Yeah, it's not, you know, this, he, the, the author or the angel here, uh, and I suppose, is this the angel speaking here? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Uh, and I think the word uh, in Greek there, there is, a, there is a because, or a stronger word even, hoti. There is a for, for uh, clause there. Uh, why is it fallen? You know, what is the context? And then there is this uh, enumeration of the, of the sins of Babylon. So what should, we, how should we add this up? And I tried to put it out like this, a dwelling place of demons. But I would like you to, to, to deepen our perspective there more than just say a d dwelling place of demons, because these are, these are kind of uh, <coughs> archaic, archaic types of, 
of, you know, this, this, this speech is not what we, the kind of speech we use in everyday language. So, so what would we do? Would anyone want to add to, to the perspective there on, on the first indictment? You can read this, you can read this verses two and three as a list of three main indictments, you know, three things that, that, that heaven has against Babylon. If we say that they are four messengers, there's four, messenger, four messages from heaven. The first one is the first angel, uh, and that is a, a message to, uh, to fear God and give him glory. And it is a message that we hear in the context of the cosmic conflict. So it's not just God. God is not the only one speaking in his word. So all these messages have, have an opposing point of view as its counterpoint. You know, they are not heard in a vacuum. And I think often when we talk about this, we make a mistake. So we don't hear the opposing voice. All these voices have, are intending to remedy or correct what the opposing side is saying about God. So, so you're saying that the first angel, and then there is a sort of time for that message to work, and then there is a second message, and maybe that also needs to work itself out. Then there is an ultimatum. There is an ultimatum in the third angel's message because the other side has made an ultimatum. If you, take, if you do not take the mark of the beast, you are out. That's what the opposing side have, has said. So the ultimatum, the, the appearance of an ultimatum in the thir third angel's message is less an ultimatum from God than it is a response to the ultimatum that the opposing side has made. The earthly power and the demonic earthly power, they have made an ultimatum. Unless you take the mark of the beast, you are out. You know, there is, the, you, there is a price on your head. And then... God is, uh, is responding to that. And then uh, you have now a second one, sort of like, like there was a sort of let up. The pressure was off Babylon for a while. Now we're coming back to see what happened. And what happened was, you know, Babylon has fallen. So I think there is a, there is, it's fair to say that one, one should sort of imagine as a, some sort of a timeline there like you are suggesting. I think that's helpful. Anyone wants to, uh, to, uh, to comment on, on Babylon then as a medium for the demonic? Sort of a vehicle for the demonic. You want to focus that sharper or, or you want to just leave it, leave it in a general way? Well, we have tried to focus it here. We have said what, what is sort of the, the main agenda of the demonic is to do what? The, 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 pers the persona who drives things on the, on the uh, opposing side, on the demonic side, is known as the ancient, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and, the, and Satan, and he does what? He deceives the whole world. So we, what the, the word we tried out there is that the, the task of the demonic is to misrepresent God in a big way. That's the focus we have tried, that there is a gigantic project of misrepresentation of God, uh, uh, you know, uh, happening in, this, in the world. And, and uh, the terminology here maybe, have, may, maybe should, should have that as its, as its focal image. The fornication part, what do we do with that? We have 
just gone over that too. So that, that seems to be the notion of unfaithfulness. Here is a church, here is a woman who should be faithful but isn't, has sort of uh, fallen off and, 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 and is now, is now uh, working in the uh, going, going uh, uh, the errand of, of an, opposing, an opposing power. And then you have the notion of trade. That's the novelty in Revelation 18. The other uh, things we have seen before, but the trade aspect uh, is, uh, is new. And the connotation of the language, the connotation of the indictment against Babylon uh, when it comes to economics is that we are facing as an economic system that is predatory and exploitative. And I think that is a, one factor that is underprojected and almost absent in traditional Adventist readings of the book of Revelation. Chapter 18 has not really come out quite right, so let's see what we can do with it uh, here. But here we have a summary, three indictments, one that might be more spiritual, or the first two perhaps, and then a second one, uh, the third one that seems to be cast in more political and, and economic terms. The tendency in our interpretive community has been to read the book of Revelation as an indictment of false doctrine, false you know, beliefs. That has been the tendency, and, it, and we've read it quite doctrinally. When, when people do Revelation seminars uh, in, in our community, we tend to do it uh, to, to uh, you know, bring out uh, various doctrines and find support for various doctrines. We're reading quite opportunistic, opportunistically. Now, the story that is told here is Revelation is quite a political book. It is quite a, quite a book. So if we say the woman, who is the woman in the broadest generic sense, the woman riding on the beast in the, in the, in the broadest, most generic sense, what is she? Or who is she? What does she represent in the broadest sense? She represents religion. She represents religion. Religion in a certain way. Uh, in a, and the beast represents in a sort of most generic way. The beast represents the state, politics. Yes, right. So you have state, you have politics. So is the Bible interested in these things? Is the Bible interested in this broad framework of human existence? Here is, you have a sort of, a sort of symbiosis, a cooperation between the woman, between the religion and the state, between politics and, and religion, that for a while is, an, is, is a relationship of cooperation, a synergistic relationship, a symbiotic relationship. And then you have that relationship coming apart. The, 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 the horns, the kings and the beasts, they shall hate the woman and burn her with fire. You know, so there is something coming apart there. That relationship comes apart. And in, inside this beast, you have a sort of demonic component because the opposing side in the cosmic conflict is somehow trying to make its case through that, through that uh, union of religion and, 
and politics. Uh, what someone has called, <coughs> someone in our community who has written a commentary on, on the most hopeless of all chapters in the Old Testament for interpreters, the 11th chapter of Daniel, which nobody knows what to do with. And this author, Ellen G. White, she says that in this chapter we have the story of churchcraft and statecraft. Oh, that is making it simple. That is sort of taking it down to essentials. In this chapter, you have, you know, the the story of churchcraft and statecraft. Well, whether or not that is works for for Daniel eleven, <coughs> I I would, you know, yes, it's helpful. But Daniel eleven, you don't need. We don't need to do Daniel eleven to to get wise. Uh, in the book of Revelation, this works very well, that you have a, a constellation of religion and state, of, 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 of faith and politics, you might say, that is playing out there and is somehow coming apart. And in that constellation, there is an economic system of predation and exploitation, and the book of Revelation wants to expose it. And, and harness people to be part of a, a counterculture or a, a prophetic critique of that system that belongs to the assignment here, it seems, and that is the no novelty here. In Revelation 11:18, there is awareness of ecological uh, problems in this world uh, because there is an indictment against those who destroy the earth. And, uh, and there are many other... Uh, other things, uh, there are other metaphors in the book of Revelation showing a world that increasingly becomes a wasteland, that increasingly becomes uh, uh, desertified, you might say, that there is more, uh, that, and in the, uh, the sort of end game, in, in, uh, uh, since we have we have drawn on revelation we have drawn on the old testament to tell this story if i could ask one of you to look up isaiah isaiah chapter 14 uh, uh, that's the uh, ending of the story of the star that fell from heaven if one of you could read revelation uh, i mean isaiah 14 and uh, uh, if i could ask for verses 19 and 20 to be read uh, that would that would be helpful those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who would not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast down, away from your grave, like lonesome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have killed your people. You have done what? Here, we're, this this is the story of the fallen star in, in in Isaiah 14. That is so so fundamental to the story. What's the end game? You have done what? You have destroyed your land. You have killed your people. You know that's the indictment. And so we have that uh, idea picked up here in Revelation. Uh, 11, 18, and you could see that as an ecological message, as a message about the state of the earth that on the, in, in this regime of the opposing side, uh, there is, uh, the earth is, is, is going down, the earth is being consumed. And then there is the economic indictment. 
And I just highlighted one of the last verses in Revelation 18.24. But there is a long economic indictment that seems to be an indictment of few people making themselves rich at the expense of the many. And then there is slave trade. There are bodies. And it says not, it doesn't say men. In, uh, what, uh, some of you have uh, 1824. Can you look it up and read it? So, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves, and human lives. That's end of 13. So it should be 1813 there and not 1823. And bodies and human lives, you know, human psyches, it says, but psyche is the word in Greek. And, and, and the other word is soma, somata, bodies and human lives. So, at the la so how do we know that it is a predatory economic system? Because all the other things could be innocent enough, couldn't it? You know, you said refrigerator, you, you know, you last, yesterday they sold a lot of flat screen TVs. You know, there is nothing wrong about that at a big discount. You know, you can do, do all these things. But you are also selling bodies, human lives. So the, the, the notion of predation, you find it in the last sentence, you find it at the bottom of it. But it means, it is meant for us to signal that the whole system is predatory. The whole system is an economically repressive or, or, or oppressive system. So, Babylon is fallen then in a spiritual sense. There is a sort of twofold things. Maybe I shouldn't have put the numbers up here, one, two, three, four. Maybe one should have put one, two, and then one, two, and divided it up in two sort of, two sort of big uh, separate sections. Babylon is first fallen in a spiritual sense. And the expose of the spiritual fall of Babylon includes a scathing socio-economic critique of the system. Babylon is then fallen in a literal sense, because there is a sort of double message in Revelation 18, the spiritual fall and the actual literal fall. Babylon falls in a literal sense. The literal fall of Babylon is described as socio-economic collapse. Those are, those are my, my propositions here. So there is first a socio-economic critique, and then there is a description of socio-economic collapse. And you read some of the verses for that, and we will read them again. <coughs> any, any comment on this? We haven't, of course, done the text yet, so maybe this, this is a, you know, I'm, I'm sort of offering a conclusion before we have looked at the evidence, but we never get to the conclusion anyway in this class, so I'll change the order. <laughs> this is the conclusion, this is the truth. <laughs> not, <exa> not really. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the comment here, I will say this for the help of recording, that when you have a description like that, you cannot help but think of 9-11. Well, you know, any, any others want to... Would, uh, you, you would have to say more than that. <laughs> uh, you, you say 9-11, the socioeconomic collapse, it seems like the world, the world did a sort of rehearsal, a sort of 
a tryout for socioeconomic collapse two years ago, when you could see how vulnerable the, the global economy is, is, and how you could also see that, that, there is, that what was it that went wrong? What was it? What was sort of the driving force here? And I, I need to be very careful now because there is a professor of economics in our class, <laughs> and he could, he could really nail us here on this one if we we get it wrong. But it seemed like like there was a greed factor, and that that greed factor somehow did not know how to restrain itself, and that that there was a sort of predatory element in this tryout for try out toward economic collapse uh, in recent times. But maybe I could ask Nabil Rizuk to, to uh, <coughs> give a comment or, or, or comment on, on, on this, on, you know, what, what sort of, well, you don't have to feel obligated. <laughs> I'm not going to, to put you on the spot here. Uh, we might get back to it. We might get back to it because I, I want to uh, propose a, a candidate, a historical candidate too, where you can see some of these things uh, maybe even, even, more, even more paradigmatic, you might say. So we'll return to it. Then there is a call to leave Babylon <clears throat> in this context. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins and so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So there is a, this is a, 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 a day of accountability, you might say. Now, <clears throat> going back to the pre uh, previous picture here, the call to leave Babylon we also should understand that, shouldn't we, in, uh, on two levels then, shouldn't we? That leaving Babylon is also to leave it in a spiritual sense, including the socioeconomic critique, you know, you know, accepting the implications of the socioeconomic critique. And then there is the leaving of Babylon when, when, when it collapses. So both of those are uh, should be kept in mind and, and are challenging to us and I think are in some ways new perspectives on how to read this book because we have we have <clears throat> been quite indifferent quite uh, quite um, uninterested in in the socio-economic aspect of this critique yeah well that's that's interesting because there is a dialogue here going on so this is a fifth voice then is it the fourth angel crying, come out of her, my people, and uh, no, there was a, he cried, fallen, fallen. The fourth voice says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Then there is another voice saying, come out of her, my people. Now, I wish we could have taken more time on, on the term, my people, because that is a very fascinating, but I, when I had worked it out uh, uh, preparing for today, I, I just didn't prioritize that enough, and, and, and our time will not allow it, or we will have to spend many times, many sessions on Revelation 18. So I just want you to, to meditate for a, a short second on the notion, come out of her, my people. Uh, and specifically the term, my people only. What, what do you hear there? What is, what is the sort of, what, what uh, associations does that, Bring. His chosen, okay. God's, so there is my people. Just a, a few more uh, ideas about that, a few more associations. 
there is a sealing going on uh, here in the story of uh, the book of Revelation uh, and uh, for people to settle into the truth of God's character uh, to, to that that is a kind of a, a defining characteristic of, of my people, as it were, yes? So we have a notion, notion of the bride of Christ here as my people. Uh, other things you want to have? Is this, is this a term that gets enriched, or is it, is, it, is it already primed for action by the Old Testament, this term, my people? This is big. This is a this is a term that comes loaded, heavy. You know, with it, it carries a big, big Old Testament uh, backpack, doesn't it? It has been defined because God has not just individuals here and there. He has what? He has a people, my people. You know, so God is in some ways standing up for His people here and 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 calling. So how would you, if I, if one of you would volunteer? Now, to be that other voice from heaven that says, come out of her, my people, how would you say it? <clears throat> you can, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do, what is it now? You have so many programs in America called, Dan you know, Dancing with the Stars, or, or, or what's the other one? Not that one, there is another one about the talent. American Idol, yes, we'll have a tryout in American Idol for the voice, the, the other voice from heaven that calls out and gets it exactly right. That's how you're supposed to say it. You're supposed to say it in a very, very loving voice. I mean, there, you're supposed to convey love, aren't you? Convey concern, come out of her, my people, you know. Yeah, with tears in your voice, maybe. So anyway, we get the picture here, don't we? That God has a, God has a corporate notion. There is a corporate notion of redemption here. There is a people. There is a priestly function too, because the people God is when God constitutes His people, uh, the story where we probably should see that happening is in the Exodus story where the people of God come out of Egypt and they are constituted as the priestly people of God, called to represent God in the world. And there are all kinds of people, they're all scattered out there. And now there is a great gathering uh, uh, where God intervenes to call, call out his people, calling them out to stand for something and also calling them out to be protected from something. Isn't there both of those things? Yes. So that is distinctive of, of God, the covenant, covenant concept. I wanted to put up this, the character of God too, because there is a certain coming to. What are you coming to here is a, you know, coming out in a sense that you, you see, you see the truth, the truth about God as a, as a contested uh, thing in the, in the cosmic conflict. Now I put a, a, a strange term here as a headline for these verses because the speech goes on, render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double draught for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Now, is this what God wants to do to the other side? Does he want to repay her double for her deeds? Does he mix a double draught for her in the cup she mixed? Is that what God is doing? Well, you know, 
at least couldn't you do it, you know, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, you know, lex, the sort of the old-fashioned kind of lex talionis, where you do retribution according to, you know, the wrong done. So, so what is it, the double, the double part? The double part, I'm just making some suggestions here, the double part could be just a figure of speech for, for the certainty of retribution. You know the certainty that there is that something will 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 happen to to this Babylon uh, figure, but it seems to me that it is better to see it as speech in character. There is a double portion, but who is doing it? You know who is actually executing this this uh, retributive action? There seems to be retribution here, but who is actually executing it? And that uh, that brings me to. Uh, I think I will, s yeah, no, uh, I don't want to, uh, yeah, we need to return to this and then we'll read the next one, the rest of the uh, verses too. Since in her heart she says, I rule as a queen, I'm no widow, I will never see grief. That's an allusion to the Old Testament. I think this one is from Isaiah 47. There are many, many allusions to the Old Testament in chapter uh, chapter 18. There are allusions to Isaiah 21, to Isaiah 47. There are allusions to Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 in a big way. And there is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 27. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as big texts informing us or, or from which this imagery is taken. Uh, and this one here, I think, is from Isaiah. Uh, and she, so since in her heart she says, I will rule as a queen and so on, and in the end she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Now, the sentence, she will be burned with fire, is in what, which voice? Who is the acting subject of this sentence? You don't know. Because when some, what does the passive voice do to a sentence? It anonymizes the acting subject. Now, we are getting good at this. There is a lot of passive voice in the book of Revelation, making it hard to know who the acting subject is, except here in Revelation 17 and 18. Because the, so, Revelation 18, 8. Her plagues will come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire. That's the passive voice. And we do not know for sure who the acting subject is. But Revelation 18 merely recapitulates Revelation 17. And the ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Is that a sentence in the active voice? That's a sentence in the active voice. And in the active voice, do you know who the acting subject is? Does the... The active voice does not anonymize the active subject. The active voice is very nice that way, very user-friendly, you might say, because we know exactly who did it. So who did it? Who burnt her with fire? The beast and the horns. So there is a precision to the imagery. This is the judgment of God. There is retribution, but the retribution plays itself out inside the camp of the, of the opposing side. Do you see that? God is not the acting subject. This is to me theologically the, by far the most important part of this, to get, to get it right with, 
respect to who you assign agency to. Who is the acting subject? The acting subject is anonymized in chapter 18. The acting subject is identified in chapter 17. And the acting subject was not, was not God. You know, there is an acting subject here, but it is playing out inside the opposing camp. They are sort of coming, you know, at loggerheads, you know, and, and, and falling apart. So this is, a, I think, an important detail here. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication, there, now there are two laments. And I w we will not read those verses. Let's just say it. There is first a lament of the political powers in verses 9, 9 and 10, and your eyes can read it faster than we can read it out loud. Lament of the political powers. Then in verses 11 to 13, there is an lament of the economic powers. So these powers have sort of been mutually dependent on one another, the political reality, the religious reality, and now the commerce or the economic reality. And then there is a moment of truth in verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed and has gone from you. That sounds like a sentence from heaven again. Like when the speaking voice here is one of the heavenly voices. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your dainties and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. And then there is a depiction of economic collapse of this system where the merchants come in again, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, who seemed to benefit from this structure, who seems in some ways to draw their, their privileged position uh, from, from her, from this structure, they are very sad now. Now, does it sound like there is illicit gain here? The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, does, do you hear that as a completely, you know, they just did business, you know, there was a, you know, they were just, it seems to me that, that there is a, there is, that connotation is illicit gain, that there was a, an unfair, unfair advantage to, to these merchants. And then there is more economic collapse in verses 17b to 19, where all the traders, the shipmasters and seafarers, because here you have a picture of, of, of trade, which would in Roman times have been Mediterranean trade and partly Atlantic trade and partly trade into Asia. Because <clears throat> the Roman Empire was a far-flung empire in these days. The Roman Empire was at its peak in terms of territory in the second century. It grew even bigger after the time the Book of Revelation was written. It grew to its biggest size under the emperors Trajan and Hadrian, who extended Rome into quite far into Asia, into Persia. And then, uh, you know, then it receded. By this time, by the time the book of Revelation was written, the Roman Empire was well established in England. And you could buy, you could go shopping. <coughs> you could go shopping with euros. <laughs> in the Roman Empire. You could shop with euros in, in, in Alexandria and in, uh, in uh, Antioch and in, in, uh, in England. You know, all the way through there, not euros, of course, but with Roman coins, Ro Roman coinage. 
there was one currency for this far-flung empire. So you will see that as a sort of reference point for, for economic integration. Uh, and then there is a, a, a moment of relief that this system, this predatory system has come to an end. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So there is a message of liberation for the people of God. And then there is a symbolic action in verses 21 and 23b, where the indictment is repeated. Again, it is repeated as a socioeconomic indictment. And prophets in the Old Testament, they like to give body language to such things. You're privileged in Loma Linda because you have people who preach here who do body language preaching, but <clears throat> we need to do more of that and throw stones in our church services, you know, which such violence the great, you know, he th takes this big millstone and throws it in there and makes a lot of, you know, a lot of commotion there. A sense of ending in the book of Revelation. And the sound of harpists and minstrels and flutists and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. See the echo here. No more, no more, no more. A sense of ending. And an artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. The first one is the end of culture. The second is the end of, what is it? Production, industry. And the sound of millstone will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. You see sort of human civilization being scaled back. All of these are Old Testament allusions, by the way. Uh, these are mostly, I think, from, from uh, Jeremiah. But, uh, but you get the idea. Is there a sense of ending in this text? There is definitely a sense of ending here. And uh, then there is the final one, uh, the bottom line in the indictment. And in you was found, again in the passive voice, intriguingly in the passive voice here, and in you was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. So I will put these things here. <coughs> I would have liked to do some history today, but there wasn't time for it. Because, yes, 9-11 could work for us in some sort of paradigm. The economic collapse, uh, or near economic collapse a couple of years ago could serve as a model. But the model that probably historically serves us, would serve the best, would be the French Revolution. Because the French Revolution, the French Revolution sort of epitomizes the union and the coming apart of, of church and state, of religion and you know, polit of politics and religion. So we probably should, re should talk a little bit about it. We can't do it today. Uh, we didn't get to it. I would have liked to acquaint you with one of, my one, of the, one of my ten favorite books, this wonderful book by Lord Acton, Sir Harold Acton. He's the person who said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He has a wonderful chapter in this book, Essays on Freedom and Power, on the run-up to the French Revolution. I have not read anyone with as much insight as Harold Acton, who was actually a Catholic, 
Catholic uh, uh, church historian who understands what freedom is more uh, with more precision than just about anyone I have uh, read, and I am reading some other things on this subject. Let's try to pick up there next time. Babylon is explicitly more than imperial Rome in, Re in Revelation 18. In you was found the blood of prophets and of, uh, of uh, saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. So obviously you cannot blame imperial Rome for everyone who has been killed. That would be unfair. So the Babylon is more than that. The spiritual fall of Babylon precedes its literal fall. Babylon wields massive spiritual, political, and economic power. The law of Lex Talionis catches up with Babylon, but God is not the executioner. Babylon has blood on its hands. So we'll try to do a little more, but I'm planning to move into chapter 19, where we have a sense of ending here. <laughs> so thank you.